0: This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte, or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' Refresher with a Cupid's Choice donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day, and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. It's Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, it looks like the ozone layer is on track to be restored in just a couple of decades, plus an opportunity to get paid for donating your stool samples. Yes, really. And an examination of the 19th and 20th century phenomenon of Tom Thumb Weddings, a.k.a. elaborate fake weddings for small children. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Well, this is a fairly huge story that I somehow missed last week. According to a new report from the United Nations, the Earth's ozone layer is on track to recover in the coming decades. Now, the hole in the ozone is not a major cause of the climate crisis, so this doesn't mean everything is fixed, far from it, but it's still very reassuring. Quoting the BBC, The ozone layer is a thin part of the Earth's atmosphere that absorbs most of the ultraviolet radiation, from the sun. When it's depleted, this radiation can reach the surface, causing potential harm to humans and other living things. Ultraviolet rays can damage DNA and cause sunburn, increasing the long-term risk of problems such as skin cancer. The ozone layer began depleting in the 1970s. Chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, which were commonly found in spray cans, fridges, foam insulation, and air conditioners, were blamed for eating away at the ozone layer. A gaping hole in the layer was discovered by scientists in 1985. Just two years later, the Montreal Protocol was signed, with 46 countries promising to phase out the harmful chemicals, end quote. And now, 99% of those ozone-depleting substances have been phased out. And if the bans on those substances remain, the UN report says that the ozone layer should return to its pre-1980s condition by 2040. That is, the hole would essentially be healed. And Specifically, they expect the ozone to be restored to that condition in about 2040 for most of the world. 2045 over the Arctic, and 2066 over the Antarctic, where the ozone depletion was the worst, and which was still expanding as late as 2000 but has now begun to heal. Quoting phys.org, The two chief chemicals that munch away at ozone are in lower levels in the atmosphere, said Paul Newman, chief earth scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Chlorine levels are down 11.5% since they peaked in 1993, and bromine, which is more efficient at eating ozone but is at lower levels in the air, dropped 14.5% since its 1999 peak, the report said. Decades ago, people could go into a store and buy a can of refrigerants that eat away at the ozone, punch a hole in it, and pollute the atmosphere. Now, not only are the substances banned, but they're no longer much in people's homes or cars, replaced by cleaner chemicals, end quote. The Montreal Protocol, which was the first UN treaty to achieve universal ratification, sets an example for the potential efficacy of global cooperation for similar initiatives surrounding the climate crisis, experts say. Plus, the efforts employed to restore the ozone could have indirect effects on the climate crisis. Quoting The Verge, The global agreement to protect the ozone layer is also beneficial for efforts to slow climate change. Ozone-depleting substances were replaced with another class of chemicals that happen to be potent greenhouse gases called hydrofluorocarbons. The Kigali Agreement was added to the Montreal Agreement in 2016 to limit those planet-heating chemicals. Axing HFCs globally is expected to reduce global warming significantly, up to half a degree Celsius by 2100. For context, the world has already warmed by about 1.2 degrees Celsius since the pre-industrial era, exacerbating many of the extreme weather disasters we live with today, end quote. As World Meteorological Organization Secretary General, Professor Petteri Talas said in a statement, quote, ozone action sets a precedent for climate action. Our success in phasing out ozone eating chemicals shows us what can and must be done as a matter of urgency to transition away from fossil fuels, reduce greenhouse gases, and so limit temperature increase, end quote. And again, even on its own, this is a huge deal. Phys.org says that some scientists and environmental advocates have long hailed these ozone efforts as, quote, one of the biggest ecological victories for humanity, end quote. And UN Environment Program Director Inger Anderson told the Associated Press that healing the ozone layer saves two million people every year from skin cancer. That said, quoting again from The Verge, there is a climate caveat with the WMO's good news. The panel of experts warns that geoengineering, intentionally manipulating the climate and or atmosphere to undo some of the damage we've done by burning fossil fuels, could potentially take its own toll on the ozone layer. They're particularly concerned about a tactic called stratospheric aerosol injection, or SAI. Proponents think that tactic could help cool the planet because the aerosols might reflect some sunlight back into space. But SAI comes with significant risks and can cause unintended consequences, according to a recent WMO-backed report. And some climate experts have already sounded alarm bells over one startup's recent attempted release of reflective sulfur particles into the stratosphere, end quote. Such efforts are one of the big variables surrounding continued healing of the ozone layer, endangering our ability to hit the timeline suggested by this most recent report. But this is overall some very welcome good news. Nonetheless, the fight is far from over. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Whether you like it or not, I've dedicated a significant amount of time in the history of this podcast to discussing how much we can learn from our poops. Wastewater surveillance systems got a whole new level of attention and respect in the middle days of the pandemic as public health agencies recognized how valuable such systems could be at tracking outbreaks of COVID-19 before they materialized in any other way. By analyzing the wastewater in a community, experts are able to identify the presence of SARS-CoV-2 that is shed by people even without or before symptoms. And that then enables them to prepare for an upcoming outbreak by enacting various mitigation strategies within the community. But it's not just COVID-19. Fecal samples can reveal so much information about a person and about the nature of different diseases and infections, helping us learn more about how to treat them. And if you've always dreamt of making a difference from your toilet, now is the chance. Biotech company Ceres Therapeutics has just launched their Good Nature program, which will pay you to send in your stool samples. Quoting Mental Floss, The company aims to study stool samples from healthy adults between the ages of 18 to 50 to advance therapies for C. diff infections. This bacterium can cause hard-to-treat gastrointestinal issues that may lead to diarrhea and colitis, that is, inflammation of the colon, and that could be potentially fatal for some if left untreated. Up to 30,000 Americans die from chronic C. diff infections every year. End quote. And yes, the Good Nature program will pay you $25 to $75 per sample for up to $1,500 per month, with potential bonuses for donating more than three times a week. And while the cash is good, if you get the full amount, that could be an actual game-changer for your budget, the point really is the research and the potential to help people living with C. diff. Now that said, not just anyone can become a porcelain throne warrior. First of all, you'll need to live near one of their three US based donation sites. Cambridge, Massachusetts, Irvine, California, or Tempe, Arizona. So that cuts out a lot of folks, but if you live close enough to any of those that you'd be willing to regularly commute for cash, keep listening. The Good Nature Program is looking for, as they said, healthy adults between the ages of 18 and 50, specifically those who have regular bowel movements, no history of gastrointestinal disease or alcohol or substance use disorder, do not smoke, and are not currently pregnant, though they do encourage you to keep them in mind for later if you are currently pregnant. So if that is you and you want to make some extra cash and you aren't too skeeved out by the idea of toting your stool samples across town to a donation site, hit that link in the show notes. It's your time to shine. So the other day I was perusing the infinitely fascinating subreddit, The Way We Were, on which people post photos and other primary documents from 50, 100, or more years ago. The goal is to mostly post things that show what everyday life was like in different eras. You get a lot of people posting photos of their parents or grandparents or other relatives just hanging out, but also a fair number of more mysterious photos from collections of pictures that people have, for example, bought at flea markets or estate sales. Recently, someone posted a photo of about 30 elementary school aged children dressed up in their finest clothes and mostly staring miserably at the camera. Like, even more miserably than most people in posed photos were back when photos, you know, took a long time to take. And the poster captioned the photo A children's pretend wedding, Arkansas, circa 1927. They all look thrilled. End quote. A children's pretend wedding. Indeed, at the center of the photo is a young boy and girl, she in a white dress complete with a veil and bouquet of flowers, and he in a little tuxedo, An older child in a mock clerical shirt with an open bible stands behind them. There's a crowd of girls in matching dresses to one side as bridesmaids and boys in black suits as groomsmen to the other side. There's even a back row of older kids who look like they're meant to be the family members and younger kids sitting cross-legged in front, the girls clutching baskets that clearly had flower petals in them moments before. For just a pretend wedding, it's extremely elaborate. I mean, how much money did some kid's family pay for this silly photo op? It turns out, maybe quite a bit, but also, it wasn't just a silly photo op. As one commenter correctly identified, this was most likely an instance of a Tom Thumb wedding. Slightly scripted, over-the-top ceremonies, these fake children's weddings were mostly popular in turn-of-the-century America and died down after World War I but still pop up here and there. The commenter on Reddit said a Tom Thumb wedding happened in their town at some point in the early 1960s and again in 1979. Atlas Obscura even dug up a photo of one happening at a school in Cleveland in 1998 as part of a fundraiser for a class trip. Quoting Atlas Obscura's 2017 article on the phenomenon, the pageants were wildly popular. In smaller communities, a Tom Thumb wedding was often the only show in town. At events like the annual Baby Parade at Asbury Park, New Jersey, they could draw crowds in the thousands. Commentary and history suggest that the dramatic practice of Tom Thumb weddings began and grew in order to teach children about religious or moral values, to model adult conduct and institutions, to offer entertainment and community fundraising potential, and because there was no Netflix to binge. Over time, the event decorated itself with different bells and whistles. Sometimes fairy tale or cartoon characters attended, sometimes there was singing, and very often there was an ice cream feast to entice the kids to cooperate. End quote. Teach kids moral and religious values, model adult conducts, entertain the community, that all makes sense, but how did people come up with the idea of a fake wedding to achieve all of that, and why were they all called Tom Thumb weddings? The answer lies with General Tom Thumb himself a.k.a. Charles Stratton, one of the most famous performers on P.T. Barnum's payroll. Stratton was already famous around the world. In his lifetime, he would perform for over 50 million people in two dozen countries when he wed fellow little person Lavinia Warren in 1863 in a very fancy ceremony in New York City. The wedding, complete with a miniature silver horse and chariot from Tiffany & Co., Over 2,000 high-ranking guests and a reception hosted by President Lincoln at the White House caused such a buzz that it apparently pushed Civil War news off the New York Times front page for three days, which was exactly what Barnum had hoped for, I'm sure, when he bankrolled what was dubbed the Fairy Wedding. Even decades later, the -the over-the-top affair was remembered by the public. When Stratton passed away in 1883, it didn't take very long for people to decide to honor his memory by having children reenact the wedding of the century. Now, I'm not actually sure if Charles and Lavinia's wedding was the direct inspiration for Tom Thumb weddings, or if the idea was conceived independently but then named after their wedding since it would have been a cultural touchstone at the time. I mean, it's certainly not a great way to honor the memory of a little person by having actual children play the parts of the adults. Adults with dwarfism are constantly having to stick up for their actual adulthood and own agency in the face of stereotypes and unconscious bias. But of course, even if people would later be unfamiliar with Charles Stratton and his epic wedding to Lavinia, his nickname of Tom Thumb would still be known to people thanks to the 17th century English folktale it originated from. So if you were going to do a fake wedding with children, Tom Thumb Wedding was as good a name as any, I suppose. And in fact, there were other names for this type of performance. Some communities called them the Marriage of the Tots, others the Jenny June Wedding but it was only the Tom Thumb wedding that was copyrighted by the Walter H. Baker Company in 1898. The pamphlet that they published was part DIY tips for putting on the wedding and part play with actual lines for the bride and groom. In Baker's version, Lavinia is retconned as Jenny June while Charles keeps his Tom Thumb moniker, and it's all as eye-roll-inducing as you would expect. Atlas Obscura quotes the original Baker Company text, Tom takes Jenny, for better but not worse, for richer but not poorer, so long as your cooking does not give me the dyspepsia and my mother-in-law does not visit oftener than once in a quarter." Jenny takes Tom, provided that you do not smoke or drink, provided that you will never mention how your mother used to cook or sew on buttons or make your shirt bosoms shine, provided that you carry up coal three times a day, put out the ashes once a week, bring up the tub and put up and take down the clothesline on wash day, and perform faithfully all other duties demanded by a new woman of the 19th century. End quote. Fortunately, it seems like the more recent iterations of Tom Thumb weddings ditch some of those tired gender stereotypes and instead focus on sharing toys and snacks and doing nice things for one another. So even if it's a weird tradition to keep up, I'm glad to see it's at least grown a bit with the times. Though I do still think the whole concept of a fake wedding for kids is a little strange. I mean, for one, like, just think about the drama and the nerves and the discomfort that could come from the two kids who happen to be assigned to marry each other. Like, what if they hate each other or secretly have a crush on each other? How much did their friends absolutely roast them after the wedding? But also... There's a certain all-too-common type of person who thinks that any mention of LGBTQ plus people is inherently sexual, that even mentioning that a kid might have two moms or that a boy can have a crush on another boy is not age-appropriate, even when mentioning that a kid has a mom and a dad or that a boy can have a crush on a girl is age-appropriate. And you often find those same people doing things like buying onesies for their baby boys that make boob jokes or say ladies man, or saying that because a girl and a boy in a preschool class, I don't know, shared Legos, so now they're boyfriend and girlfriend. The idea of pushing these roles on kids who, at best, could not care less, and sometimes are uncomfortable with the whole thing, doesn't sit great with me to start with but especially when it's employed by the same people who accuse much more age-appropriate acknowledgement of lgbtq plus people as sexualizing children so there's that and the whole equating adult little people with children thing that makes these tom thumb weddings not completely my cup of tea But they are certainly an interesting blip in history, and one which reveals a good deal about celebrity culture and 19th century gender roles and how people in small towns kept themselves amused back in the day. Well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.